Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Consider God's grace in providing to us freedom from our bondage to sin. If you explore the Old Testament, you will find many texts which speak of God's having granted freedom to his people, Israel. In each of these instances, we see how this freedom he granted to those he loved was merely but a small and pale foreshadowing of the freedom yet to come. The true freedom that he would provide both to Israel and to all people would come through faith in the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The scripture text for our meditation this evening covers a portion of those pivotal and dramatic events in Egypt by which God finally persuaded Pharaoh to let his people go. In the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, God gives Moses and Aaron a very detailed prescriptive of what must be done to protect his people from impending death and to prepare them for the freedom that was soon imminent. He tells them when they are to do this. He tells them how they are to do this. He tells them with what they are to do it. And he tells them why they are to do it. An unblemished male lamb is a pivotal requirement in the Lord's plan for those who would listen and who would be saved. The lamb must be slaughtered. Its blood must be spilled and used to mark the protected ones. The lamb must burn. The lamb must be completely affected by the flames of a fire and then be consumed bodily in its fullness by the people. And they are to be ready at all times to answer their call to leave their bondage and to begin a new life. And they also are aware that failure to heed God's warning and to accept God's promises will leave them subject to great destruction, even unto death. And so it's very clear to anyone paying attention here that sometimes a meal is more than just a meal. It becomes more than just a chance to satisfy our taste buds or stuff our stomachs. Sometimes a meal can take on much greater significance. And there are several examples of this. For example, when a couple on their wedding day feeds a small morsel of cake into one another's mouths, they're not doing it just because they're in the mood for it. No, this has a great symbolic meaning as they begin their lives together. Likewise, the final meal of a death row inmate is more than just a chance for him to die without hunger pangs. It's an acknowledgement that despite whatever evil actions might have led to this severe consequence, even a criminal remains human. And all of you, you may not really like turkey and stuffing all that much, but I'll bet most of you have eaten it on more than one occasion at Thanksgiving, perhaps more often than you even want to remember. You see, in such situations, eating is often about far more than just eating. On their last night in Egypt, during their final hours of slavery, the Israelites joined together in a meal that was far more than a meal also. None of the menu items that were given to them by God was chosen just to pretty up their plates. Nothing was chosen or given on account of its nutritional content either, or even because it happened to have a good flavor. In fact, one part of it was chosen specifically because of its bad taste. Bitter herbs were the Israelites to eat. 
Yes, bitter herbs, because their taskmasters, taskmasters in Egypt had embittered their lives, put them under a daily grind of servitude. And just as cows chew their cud over and over again, these soon-to-be-freed slaves were to chew these herbs year after year as an edible token of the bad taste left in their mouths by all those corrosive years in bondage. Unleavened bread was also part of this meal. Unleavened because it had to be. Because soon Pharaoh, even before this night was over, would banish them from his land. This would be before the yeast would have a chance to work its way through the dough and fluff it up and enlarge it and expand it. Yes, this was the bread of affliction. It was a bread that had to be done quickly because they would have to exit us from Egypt in haste before this tyrant changed his mind yet again, relocking their chains of bondage. And so the unleavened bread was truly fast food. But it was fast food of the sacred sort because the people of God would literally have to eat and run. And so these bitter herbs were the dish of remembrance. And the unleavened bread was the dish of haste. And its own way to the main course, the roasted flesh of a sacrificed lamb, it heralded something else for the people of God too. Something that was for them both now and not yet. The now of this roasted meat was a tangible sign that just a few hours before, an innocent victim had been slaughtered in their place. Above and alongside the entrances to their homes was painted the blood of that substitute, a signal to God that they had had indeed obeyed everything that he had commanded them regarding this meal. For the angelic destroyer that was passing through the land that night would pass over their homes, sparing their firstborn. But he would pass into the homes of unbelievers, leaving a trail of blood in his wake. The blood of the Passover lambs, then, was a crimson hieroglyphic. It translated into one saving message. Pass over, O messenger of death. A child of God lives here. And so as they tasted that lamb's flesh, these children of God knew that neither they nor their sons nor their daughters would taste of death. Their good shepherd had prepared for them a table in the presence of their enemies, a table that would give them light and life as they walked through the valley of the shadow of Egypt. As wonderful as God's grace and mercy were in this meal, though, the main course proclaimed a message that extended well beyond that night, and well beyond all of the Passover celebrations that would follow. Indeed, this whole meal, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, the roasted lamb, it was all an edible prophecy. For just as the preachers of old uttered prophecies of the coming Messiah, so this meal too was also a foretelling, a foretelling that they could sink their teeth into. It promised that what the Israelites were eating in the here and now was merely a foretaste, just an appetizer that was to make their taste buds eager for the meal that was not yet. And this not yet meal would be one that would far surpass their Passover supper in Egypt, both in wonder and in excellence. This surpassing meal is definitely more than just a meal. Yes, it's about eating, but it's about far more than just eating. And it's about drinking, but it's also about far more than just drinking. This is a table where the things of earth are lifted up to the things of heaven, and the things of heaven are brought down to the things of earth. Here God comes down into the Egypt of our captivity, 
not to kill his enemies, but to place into our mouths his very own body and blood, given into death to save his enemies, to save you and to save me. This food of the new and better Passover may seem a bit bland to us at times, perhaps even austere. Bread and wine, nothing there to dazzle our palates, right? Nothing that's going to impress a gourmet or make this world's connoisseurs salivate. But it was so in ancient times as well, when the Israelites ate the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and the roasted lamb. There was nothing in that meal that would raise the eyebrows of whoever might have been the Martha Stewart of ancient Egypt. But the Father did not send His Son into the world to impress the world, but rather that the world would be saved through Him. And the means that He uses to save you are wrapped in a disguise of utter simplicity. So take, eat. This is simple bread is His body. It is the body of the perfect Lamb who was not passed over but rather the lamb who passed under the knife, or rather who passed under the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, passed under the sentence of the spineless Pontius Pilate, passed under the whips and the blows and the spitting and the thorns of the soldiers, passed under the sneers of the crowd, passed under the beams of his cross, passed under all of the evil that this world could heap upon him, and then some. Yet he also passed under the verdict of his heavenly Father. The verdict which declared this perfect, innocent one to be guilty of all of our crimes. The one who was asked to suffer our sentence. All that so we, also that we who are the totally guilty ones, might get off scot-free. And so take, eat. This is the body of God's own lamb. No knife slices his throat as did the first Passover lambs. Instead, Nails, spear pierce him through. The cross is born for me, for you. Behold a Lamb of God, skewered on the beams of that cruel tree, and all the flames of hell ablaze beneath him, fueled not, fueled not by the little specks of our sins, but rather by the great planks and logs of our transgressions, leaping up to roast his flesh, the flesh of a pure and perfect sacrifice. So take, eat. Open your mouths, fear not. Taste and see that the lamb is very good indeed. Good enough for you who have been horribly bad. Good enough for you. Good enough for all the world. So good in fact that in eating him, you become the good that he is. You are, well, you are what you eat. Also take drink. This is his blood in simple wine. It is the life-giving blood of the Lamb who gave His life for you. And He gave it not in a single outpouring, but from the very alpha of His life to its omega. He gave it first as an eight-day-old infant, shedding the drops of His circumcision blood, conforming perfectly to the law for you. He gave it in Gethsemane as He prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be removed from Me. His sweat becoming like drops of blood, already filling the cup, as He fulfilled the Father's will for you. The Father would indeed remove that cup from Him, but only after the obedient Son had drained it, drained it of all the poison of our sins, and filled it instead with His precious and priceless vintage of love. He gave it when the whips ripped open His muscles. He gave it when the thorns punctured His brow. He gave it when the nails tore through His hands and His feet. 
And finally, when the soldier's spear broke through that dam of his flesh to unleash a torrent of water and blood that spilled forth to pool in every font and in every chalice of all Christendom from then until eternity. So take drink. This is his blood. Don't paint it just on your door frames, but paint it on your lips, on your tongue. Paint it in your heart. Paint it on your soul. This blood is the, army of all, or the armor of Almighty God. It shields every inch of you from the destruction that will overtake this world when the angels come to execute the judgments of God. But they will pass over you, these destroying angels, for you have passed under and you have bathed in the flood of the bleeding side of the Passover lamb. You've been painted with the crimson colors of Christ who hands his chalice to you. Take and drink, and drink, and drink yet some more, for this cup is your very salvation, the blood that flows from the veins of the perfect lamb. And so here is a meal that takes on a life of its own. Rather, it's the meal that takes on the life of another, the life of its founder and institutor, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And in taking this meal into yourself, you take on His life as your life, passing from bondage into freedom, passing from death into life everlasting. In His holy and precious name, amen. amen.